back to part two of our interview with Micah Brown. In this interview, he discusses in more detail how he negotiated the sales of his two companies and what he did to start his venture capital fund this year. Enjoy the episode. Uh, so then how did you transition to sentiment, which uh, from what I read was a piece of ad tech that predicted human thought <laughs> and then helped plan and execute on programmatic uh, media campaigns. Yeah. Uh, I mean, at this point, I guess you were in that world already, but how did you transition to that? Was there any other gigs in between? Yeah. Well, actually, I don't even put these gigs on LinkedIn anymore, but you're right. Um, that's a very insightful question. So, so I do film for the started, really started in earnest. Well, it's an interesting story because I really technically started film funded. It was a spreadsheet at the American film market. And I went for the first time ever in September 2015. Remember that specifically? So I had this spreadsheet. It was like not where, no any of the actual software, but it would just come up with numbers off the back of comps and other things. And people at the AFM were losing them. Like one dude literally just bought me a bunch. He was like some multimillionaire film dude. Bought me a bunch of drinks, invited me to his house in Beverly Hills, and just had me run every film he'd ever done on this little <laughs> spreadsheet. He's like, just drink, yeah. <laughs> so I was like, I was like drink cool. spreadsheets, just drink, just drink and do spreadsheets. So I was like, randomly it was, fun. If you've not been to like a high level Hollywood event, go. Mm. It's a total waste of your time, <laughs> right? Because people will run you. I can't wait. This is a sidebar. I can't tell you how many circles wealthy people in Hollywood will run you around mm. and do nothing and spend no. What's well, funny? They spend money on stupidity, mm. but they spend no money on actual deals. Anyway, so <laughs> so we did this. And I was like, all right, there's a lot. This is my market for this. Cool. Literally, like, well, I left NBC. So I went in September. I left in like October, and I'd been there a little bit before that. And I had a bit of money in time in the 401k. I was like, right, time. Like, yeah. <laughs> Put like, start paying people. I must have spent like my whole 401k on this thing. Like, I had 80 grand at the time. And huh. so I powered through until what, February, March 2016. When I say powered through, it was like, I had a team of six people, and we were like, doing and um building product building getting customers product, everything customers or? i was traveling a lot i was doing a lot that's one of the things i find with a lot of first-time entrepreneurs mm. press is cool in fact it's very helpful when used properly traveling is cool being at events is cool being at forbes don't do it until you've built your product yes like well, and, I, well, and have money coming revenue, coming revenue i can't tell you like i i meet so many people now Usually for wealthy households who are like, yeah, I'm going to like, you know, summit. I'm going to try and meet investors. Is that your American accent? <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. I'm going to try and, uh, We should do an accent sidebar at the end. Anyway, <laughs> um, and I look at these guys and I'm like, <laughs> like, I was like, no, that's great. You know, you go to summit to meet people with a product that you haven't built yet for something that you don't know anything about. That's amazing. No, do that. <laughs> so yeah, I, I did that trouble. But then, yeah, then it was like maybe February and I had like, Two months of runway left. And I can't tell you how much that focuses you, man. Mm. I've been there a couple of times since even. And the focus? <laughs> Woo! And we built this thing. Like, if you if you look it up online, you'll see videos and me demoing it and stuff. Like, it flew. Like, it was. And then IBM, that was the first real partnership I got when I finally built something. IBM gave us a bunch of service space through their soft layer entrepreneur program. Mm -hmm. Then that gave us, like, the service space to really crunch numbers. And then people were using it. And then I did a couple of pitch competitions, uh, Tech Week LA and Tech Week NYC, we won one of them. And then, then it really started to take off, but then I was running out of money. Mm. So I did this job for a little bit. I was like the chief product officer of Prio. And this is actually the thing that made me want to definitely never ever do a normal nine to five without an entrepreneurial thing again. Because I went into this job whilst doing Film Funder, right? And had the whole team, the team, but just not as much money, so I needed money. 
And I went in and I then I remember this race. Rich was like, you want some bags? And I don't want any equity. I just want cash. Oh, cool. Got bought by AB and Bev oh. within like three months. Oh. <laughs> and so it was like, oh, okay, cool. I need to be the founder next time. Like, And so after that, um, yeah, I just went all in. Like from like when I left and I guess maybe June to September. So then I did Venture Out. I don't know if you know Venture Out. It's like this hyper accelerator. And then we did that in September. And yeah, it was really good, great reception, everyone, but still no investors. And so I was like, man, this is, something's not working here, man. And so what I'd actually been doing along the side is like, I've been in the super initial research stages of a PhD in neuroscience, just, just to be up on this stuff through uh, Fielding University, connected to UC Berkeley. And I took a trip out to UC Berkeley and uh, for my course. And then I, I found out about this thing called the Hooth Study. Alexander Hooth, really smart dude, UC Berkeley dude. Nerd nerds will know this because it's in the neuroscience world. This is like, you know, Da Vinci. <laughs> and basically he came up with this thing called a voxel, which is a way to use machine learning to understand multiple people's brains at the same time. And so what that basically means is you do fMRI scans and you combine the data. And then what you can do if you add EEG to that, which is what we do is, is spatial temporal understanding. So now I can understand the space and time of what a person thinks, when, how, and why. And I can replicate and ask any question of that AI entity in the same way I would with a person. Hmm. And so I was like, and at the time this wasn't really well known. Like the study just got done in 2016. I was like, this is gonna be ridiculously huge. And so like I took the company, I was like, listen, the film growth thing is great, but we need to do something else. And so quite a lot of the people who were involved in the film thing left. Um, and it was basically me and my mentors from the PhD. They gave me a little bit of safe-based investment, uh, super agreement for future equity-based investment, like like 20 grand. So that kept me alive because at this point I was like tapped. Mm. But then I had a big decision, man. I mean, like it's September, but I was at the crescendo of everything I'd done, but I basically had to go away and rebuild a bunch of stuff, build sentiment. But I had the, the media traction. Now people knew who I was in the entrepreneurial scene. Mm. And so I had no money left. Well, I mean, I had this 20 grand, but like, I couldn't spend that on like my lifestyle at the time. I'd still been living at Central Park, next to Central Park this whole time, like next to Central Park. And I'd blown through my savings. And so I was like, right, I need to like go in all, all in this. So I moved back to my parents in Long Island, which was hard at 20 something and late 20s. And um, been there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so like, but like then we just went into a hole and somehow I ended up with like a team of like 30 people worldwide. Like my PhDs knew other PhDs. My co-founder Tim had some other engineers that he knew. And just when everyone found out what we were working on, it was just like human thought driven advertising. Really, how do I get involved in that? I don't care what I'm being paid. Hmm. And so I just had all these resources with no money, with no money. Hmm. And we built this thing, man. Oh, we built this thing. Whole, no social media, not talking to nobody every day on Slack in Git in Python, in Anaconda, like just just testing the product. And I remember my mom came into the living room one night and had the EEG headset on and the computer was talking back to me. And she must have stood and watched me for like an hour <laughs> and not said anything. Just, you know when someone just stands there like, what is going on? And she just came over to me like, Mikey, you need to get married. <laughs> and then she just went back to her room. And I was like, but yeah, so we both thing and then it was ready. And I remember this moment very distinctly as well. Like, so it was January snowing in Long Island. Um, I used to basically, cause I had to get out of the house, go to the Panera bread down the road. And I would just, I would work out 
I do some work at Panera Bread and I come home every day. And uh, I was at Panera Bread and, and big up, big up Matthew Melville, really cool dude, lawyer from day one. Um, he's basically like just being like an instrument. You got to have sidebar. No, don't even start a startup idea without somebody serious giving you legal advice. Matthew Melville guy, and he rings me, he's like, Michael, I've basically been doing free work for you for like two years and I've taken a lot of flack on my firm for it, but I support you. Can you do something soon? <laughs> I was like, all right, cool. So I basically like got this co-working space, Rise New York, and if you know Rise New York, Stella, big up Stella. And um, she gave me the space for like an evening. I wasn't even a member. And I just invited everyone I knew like VCs and press and everyone. And I just told people about this thing and I showed the like routine brain. I don't know if you've seen these videos online when I do them, like routine mm -hmm. brain, check some of them out. And everyone loves it, but nobody wanted to invest. And there were real investors in that room, like people with actual net worth. And so all these guys leave and it's like 4 a.m. at Rise. And I'm seeing, I'm not a member, remember? I'm sitting in this place. I'm like, I didn't even have the train fare to go home. So I just stayed there. And, um, and I'm sitting there, I'm just depressed, man. I'm like, oh my days, I brought this human thought-driven stuff and no one understands it and no one's investing. And then Ken walks in. So this super unassuming guy, great guy, Ken Lang. Dude, well, I'm like here, he's like four seats down. He's working at 4 a.m. though. He's as much of a like hardcore workaholic nerd as I am. I was like, oh, this is cool. And then so maybe 10 minutes go by and he comes over and asks what I'm working. I was like, oh, you know, the ability to predict what people think. And he's like, really? I was like, yeah. So, you know, I made him sign an NDA and then I showed him all my code for like a couple hours. He was like, cool, I'll give you some money tomorrow. Yeah. I was like, I don't believe you, but okay. Guy leaves, lawyer gets in touch with me. He wires like $100,000 in the next 40 wow. hours. And then what was crazy about that is that really blew everything. So if you look in the, you've probably seen some of the articles and stuff, but like, so that happened. Then we had, a, we came up with Watson Company, then a Google partner, then Sprint, um, a Sprint Accelerator. So then Sprint was the thing that really kicked things off because like, you know, um, flying out there, there aren't many, there hadn't been that many black people in that program ever, much less anyone to do a lot of the things that I did. And then what I really did, which is the main article that came out of it is I, I managed to negotiate a partnership with the Kansas University Medical Center, which is this like premium neuroscience hospital. And they proved our research and they validated it. And then that was a big deal. And that had actually, that on my site, this is, I had to do a proper Forbes article about this when everything settles down, I've raised the fund, but like, like, that had never happened before in American history. Hmm. That was cool. And then, um, and things were just up and up from that. And then, but I kind of faced this interesting problem, which I like to talk about for founders who do something that's market first. I don't know why there isn't like some scientific term for it. There probably is. When you do something first, you've got to define all the rules. And how you define the rules in real time determines how successful you are, which is different to many other industries. If you think about finance, right? The SEC, you generally know what is an acceptable and is acceptable by the SEC. Right? So I'm gonna make a product that does this, it'll be successful and it'll be acceptable, it does this and it won't be. It's not like that when you do something first. I was literally like helping legislate the Brain Act. People, so there was some people I was advising in Congress about this. The Brain Act is just the law that allows you to do certain things and not do certain things with neurodata and there are so many loopholes in it still. So things like um, if you have a neuroentomology data, which is neuromapping data, right? you can actually use neuromapping data to psychologically profile people and segment them, but it's not illegal to do that right now because it's not understood in the law. Mm. Um, so anyway, that kind of stuff is happening and it's just all this stuff is happening and it's just really overwhelming and it went really well. And then Ken even did follow-up investments, Sprint invested, investment was happening. 
but people just didn't really get the grasp of what I was doing. And we were making money. We were like, we had revenue, we'd raise some money. And so like by kind of September, we were running out of money again. But the real horrible nightmare of when you're a successful, and I only tasted this after raising like a couple hundred thousand dollars and with a lot of press, um, thing though, and which brings me back to what I said at the beginning of the podcast. I know friends who've gone through this at a much bigger level, like the pressure, because it's like all of a sudden, if you're asking your friend for like, oh, I need some money to get an Uber or the bus, why? You're on the fourth day on the third list. <laughs> why would you do that? Oh, because I don't have any money. How? Can you <laughs> tell me about that? No. Okay. <laughs> so, so it was just, it was really stressful. And then basically in about what, September, October, we totally ran out of money, but I had a ridiculous press wave. I had so many people reaching out to me and I was just, you know, I actually, a close friend of mine basically got me this awesome apartment to just chill in because I'd been back on my parents' and I'd been in different apartments and just around and be traveling, been in Kansas for a little bit of sprint. And I just kind of switched off from the world, like September, October, November, December. And then my current business partners, Billy and Todd came along, they're these two agency guys. They put some more money into the company and really got it started again. But it was a different vision at that point. Like it was basically an agency, which is fine because we made more money doing that. And that got us through most of this year. Uh, but I think it's the pragmatism that comes with being a founder. Cause if you like dogheadedly, just like exclude everyone and just focus exclusively on your vision and the world needs to follow your vision. If you've raised millions of dollars, great. If you haven't, it's gonna affect your life very negatively. Right. And so, yeah, I pivoted and uh, what it did, which was really interesting, was um, all the scientists and engineer people who'd been on board before kind of just faded away. And like this new set of kind of agency people came along. But then that's what led to the exit. Um, we're still in the progress of crossing some T's and dotting some I's, but it's a big holding company that bought out the company. Um, yeah. Well, there's a lot to unpack there, but uh, I think what, I'll focus on in terms of takeaways and I want to hear if Sergey, if you have any thoughts, but you know, you obviously got a lot of opportunities because you were putting yourself out there, uh, because you were meeting people, I think in no small, small part when you were still up at 4am working and that, what is his name? Ken? Ken Lang, yeah. And Ken Lang came in and saw you and then you explained something that also happened to match his enthusiasm for a potentially new space that could produce a unicorn, which every investor cares about. Mm-hmm. Uh, that alone was a emotional decision for him but also based on his experience he probably realized okay you know what I'm going to give this guy some money and he gave you a chance and then you ended up using media and leveraging other relationships to your advantage to then continue to progress still trying to figure things out and that's what entrepreneurship is about you know it's usually not a straight line sometimes you get lucky and things fit together but usually they only fit together for a certain period of time and then again you have to figure out either the new a new customer acquisition strategy or a new product which is why they always say you have to like for big companies they have to continue to innovate in order to stay alive that's exactly true right otherwise they'll die and so you've been able to leverage uh, your relationships and just continuing to persevere and we talk about this a lot too persistence and perseverance and focus to ultimately have a positive outcome in the end and obviously at that point then you became uh, some of an expert probably in neuroscience and ai and data science which i'm assuming led to you now launching this fund yeah and again, you probably leverage your relationships in order to do the next cool thing, which is like, all right, I've done the entrepreneurial thing. I have a few acquisitions under my belt, but now let me work with other entrepreneurs that are smart and give them money to hopefully explode. And I know really quickly, if you can share about your VC fund, but I know your first four seed investments already went on to raise a series A round, yeah. which is huge. There's a huge gap right now in the fundraising uh, space where there's a lot of companies that can raise angel or seed money 
a lot of times from friends and family. That's yeah. probably why. But then they can't get it to the next level and get VC investment. Why do you think that's been the case for you? I think that one of the key things is what I call market appetite segmentation, right? So, like, you typically find that an early stage company is focusing on some interim vision, right? Most professional investors do not and are not and will not invest in, like, the true Uber. Like, really what Uber wants to be is a connected services syndication company that sits as a layer between the real world and services and does everything. But, like, if Travis had gone to, like, what, Sequoia and said, yeah, I want to be the everything of everything. I want to be Jusiro. No. <laughs> so when neuroscience founders are articulating themselves to investors right now, that's usually what they're articulating, Right. So, you know, if you take even uh, 55B, which is one of our portfolio companies, Michael, really cool dude. Um, he originally started articulating that he wanted to kind of solve all bullying in the workplace using neuroscience. One, what does that mean? <laughs> Two, how do you do that? Three, it sounds expensive, right? <laughs> and like, so, you know, as we went through the process with him, um, I said, all right, why don't you start with workflow processes that bullying interrupts? Oh, if someone gets bullied, they stop being efficient. Cool. So if you put a headset on them, when that's happening or before it happens or after it happens, you find the before, then and after state. And once you're able to do that, then you can efficiently grow a workforce. Oh, wow. Now you have a product which I can show efficiency saving. Well. Here's the before, here's the after, 50% difference. That equates to like half of your workforce. That's half a billion dollars. Numbers can get put to it, right? And so somehow, and I was talking to Loop Ventures about this today, the other neuroscience fund on the East Coast. There's really only two of us. <laughs> and somehow like, I just ended up being the translator. <laughs> and I think that's just because I went through both sides of the process and the incentive system for anybody to do that is very low on either side. So like, not all, but most PhD neuroscientists usually come from means. Like if you're going to spend like six, seven years at MIT, Stanford or whatever, you can't just do that all on a scholarship, right? Well, some people do, but but yeah, so that I, I didn't do that. But I did the first initial steps of that. And then obviously I really went deep on the entrepreneurial side. So, so all of a sudden I have this ability to talk to these guys, understand their segments. So like, for instance, the difference between brain computer interfaces, neuroentomology, neuropsychology, and neurophysiology are all stuck. Mm. But if you said that to a person on the street, they would have no idea what you're talking about. Right. But take neurophysiology, that's an $80 billion market, right? And it's deeply entrenched into a brand like Equinox. So like you could literally take, if you took a neurophysiology based product to understand what mood people are in when they work out and what their peak mood is, you could actually use that to sell Equinox memberships. But even the fact that I just made those two connections, like if you went to an actual neuroscientist and you said, tell me about dendrite and dendrite connections and also dopamine levels in relation to Equinox, <laughs> they would go, go away, you're an idiot. And if you went to someone at Equinox and said, yeah, brain scans are going to sell you more gym memberships, go away, you're an idiot. But you're, you're uh, coaching founders that don't necessarily have that lens to then be able to connect the dots for an investor who does care about the big 80 billion dollar market well, opportunity. And, that, and that's that's one takeaway from me and correct me if i'm wrong but it sounds like the entrepreneurial projects that you've worked on started off as curiosities interests you like to tinker you're a product guy even that scene that you described in in uh, your parents place in long island like you're sitting there probably till three four in the morning tinkering that's when your mom walks in and so it sounds like you started these businesses by thinking of interesting product ideas starting to build them and then trying to get investors excited yeah. and then along the way figured out the business opportunity and now 
as an investor, because you see how difficult that is to do, start with a product that then tries to find a solution. Yeah. You're trying to find smart product people that can validate the business and and then run with it essentially. That's when they deserve your money. So so if you could answer uh, this last question in an accent of your choice, okay. <laughs> how do you how do you identify that in an entrepreneur? You got a bunch of smart people. You have an ability to evaluate whether they're technically competent. How do you then figure out whether that person is going to be able to bring something to market? So what you want me to say that um, I find a lot of people and they're pretty good, right? And they're smart <laughs> and I turn them into smarter people who actually have some real expertise. You sound like Vadim and I now. How, <laughs> yeah, how cool. dare you, Michael? I reject this. I love the body swapping this happen. I feel like I'm just going to carry this the whole time. Um, so so yeah, I guess, I guess the simple answer to your question is that yes, if you're already smart, it's a lot easier to take whatever it is that's in your head and make it into like intellectual property that you can then sell. I feel like I'm going like Midwestern and Western. Let's go back to my Yeah, I'm going to go back to Southern. Go back to my. That was really impressive. Seamless, yeah. Um, no, it, it's, it's funny. Do you know what I just realized? Like the amount of intellectual energy it takes to do that <laughs> is so intense. And I was like, I was hearing myself talk, and I was furious. Anyway, well, so yeah, no. Um, long story short, like, these. I've met a lot of these people, right? And so, like, last year, this impressed around what we did at MIT. I took my kids... Oh, sidebar. Um, I managed to build a lot of sentiment with a 20-person engineering team on a 100K budget because I went to City, I think, what, March, April, and I got to speak there. And it turned out, like, none of the kids on the computer science program were getting hired anywhere in New York for any tech jobs. This is City College this in New York? This is City College in New York, yeah. And so I basically built a program with a dude named David Wysoki and the school that was called CCNY Codes, and we placed them in lots of jobs, Amazon, Facebook, Google, by bullying people, which was great. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so, so that's actually a real example of what you're talking about, right? So, and it also gets to our thesis. So most VCs, as you say, start with, all right, did you build a product? Is it profitable? Great, that's true. That doesn't really apply with deep tech because it's such a lowly understood field um, with so much value in it that hasn't even been surfaced yet. You can't look at it that way. Mm the embodiments of what somebody builds when they have that kind of intellectual capacity are what the real value is. Now, if you're then able to like Palantir or Facebook or all these different places with smart people behind them, actually take that and put some business competency around it, now you're dangerous, right? But I, you know, I don't even start with that. Like one of the kids I took to MIT with me last year, Jason, uh, who now works, uh, well, he's done some work at Waymo and he's doing some work for Hedgefund right now. Yeah, he's a classic example. So when he came to me like, Super smart kid can code out the wazoo, no idea how to communicate with people, right? Now he's like super articulate. That's how he got this work at this fund. And so if I can do that with these founders, right? And I can take the incredible things that are happening in their head and I can wrap it in communication skills and I can wrap it in business skills and I can wrap it with the ability to understand how to raise money. All of a sudden they actually one at a time can change the ecosystem, which is originally what I wanted to do with sentiment. And that's why I'm doing it the fund right now because I just realized like, yeah, sure, a product can do that to a certain degree in terms of removing bias within media, but people do it better. If I invest in 50 people this year, right, and they all have that done, and they all are already coming out of these places where they understand these nuances about how the brain works and why and how it affects bias and how it affects healthcare, and they're able to translate that to common parlance, they will do way more damage than I could do by myself. So it sounds like you're taking advantage of the somewhat 
I guess, first mover advantage yeah. uh, that you have, because you mentioned that there's only maybe another fund uh, that ventures. focuses on this. Yeah, yeah. Luke Ventures. And because it's so unproven, and yet there's still a lot of upside, potential upside, which is all that VCs care about, yeah. uh, you're able to take advantage of that, and you're looking specifically for the talent that you're now molding and developing the necessary skills that they need to build their companies that you're doing, I'm assuming, through a lot of one-on-one work, right? Depending yeah. On well, it's funny. I actually just had to optimize this, so I just do it all through sentiment capital, but... I guess at one point this year, because our model this year was so different to last year, where I was like, we were on a venture path last year, right? Like, it was like, we're going to build this product, get through Sprint, do all these different things, get through Techstars, and then we're going to friggin' raise $100 million. Couldn't do that. This year, it was like, all right, run an agency, make it pretty cool, do some stuff. A lot more time, less pressure. So I I racked up my involvement with CCNY Co's. I did the visiting lecturer position. I also mentored at NUMA, the, the NUMA position. Um, and I, I was involved in all the industries, including the one that I came with you, with uh, Jen FKD. Mm-hmm. So um, with that, what I was able to see was this interesting trend, right? When you reach people with entrepreneurial capabilities in those environments at that stage, you're able to create a worldview within them which serves a lot better once they get to a position of power later on in life than if they get that in their late, mid-even 20s. So like a great example of this is um, Carlos, kid who worked for me last year, works at Northrop Grumman. Mm-hmm. Northrop Grumman is a defense company. Uh, so basically he came to me, couldn't code very well, like not very confident in himself. And yeah, he's a person of color. And he just, uh, he was really talented as a technical person, but he just didn't have everything he needed. Built that within him. And now he's like, the f- I think the first person on that program at North Grumman. Uh, so that's pretty cool. And so stories like that, right? When you take these guys and you wrap this competence around them and you wrap this, this awareness and cognizance around them at that early stage, say he goes on to become like a weapons engineer. Right, so now you've got someone like making, you know, F-22s who actually has a cognizance of something like fighter balance change and mid-range defense radars and their effect on people and bombings. If Carlos, you know, as he becomes, uh, he grows into that kind of role, if that's what he chooses to do, um, those kind of thoughts about, all right, I come from areas like this and my experiences in life inform this. I should design weapons differently. I should design AI differently. I should design cars differently. I should design whatever it is. That only happens if you reach them at that stage. Hmm. Like if, if you are doing those jobs and you're just literally just doing what you're told, especially if you come from nothing, which makes you do what you're told 10 times more, right. um, like... That means that the attrition required to actually change these things takes longer. And so it's, it's, it's a personal mission, particularly with neuroscience for me, because it's such an important field. People don't realize, like, think about facial recognition or fingerprinting or just generally the biometrics field, right? That's made its way into our daily life. People forget that. It's in our cars, it's on our phones. It's even on some people's doors. 20, 30 years ago, if you'd said that, Oh, yeah, biometrics is going to be on your phone. It's going to be how you get into... Shut up. What are you talking about? <laughs> so when I say that, like, neuroentomology and neuromapping is going to be part of our daily lives in five, six years, and that we actually will have neurodata being lifted the way locations are lifted from Google right now, the design, the skills, and the market for that in terms of these people, and there's only about a 1,000 of them in the country right now, that matters. So, yeah. I think that's a really great place to wrap up the episode because that's what our show is all about, The Mentors, is 
you know, we want to create that level of awareness. And it actually doesn't really matter. We think what age you are, at least you get the awareness at some mm. point, And hopefully you can do something with that information. But that's what consuming content like podcasts and reading things like the investor book that you read uh, is all about. That's what trying to get mentors and advisors and experts and other people that have different sets of experiences than you is all about is being aware of the different possibilities so that when the time comes, you can take advantage of future opportunities. So I'm really glad that we're on the same page there, Micah. And uh, I'm confident that you're going to do a lot more and have a lot more cool startups that we'll have you back on the show to share about. And certainly that will come out of your venture capital fund. Thanks so much for being on the show, Micah. You can follow Micah on Instagram, Micah Brown Official, or Twitter, Micah AP Brown. And of course, uh, we'll have some additional links in our website as well, thementors.co. Micah, thanks a lot for coming to the show. Perfect. Thank you very much, man. Nice, dude. Cool. That was really good. Like, the, the question was nice.